Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, where we're going to be able to join a conversation among colleagues and friends of mine who have participated in producing the Social Justice Torah Commentary, which is coming out this year, 2021, from the CCAR Press. We're going to speak with the commentary's editor, Rabbi Barry Block, and two of its contributors, my friends and colleagues, Dr. Christine Garraway and Rabbi Nama Kelman. Rabbi Barry Block serves Congregation B'nai Israel in Little Rock, Arkansas. He is the editor of the Musar Torah Commentary, which came out from the CCAR Press in 2020 and was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. He currently serves as a vice president of the CCAR and is a regular contributor to the CCAR Journal. Barry, it's great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Dr. Christine Henriksen Garraway was appointed visiting assistant professor of Bible at HUC's Skirball Campus in Los Angeles in 2011. She received her doctorate in Hebrew Bible and Cognate Studies at HUC Cincinnati in 2009, and she is a widely published author in popular and scholarly venues, including Children in the Ancient Near Eastern Household, Growing Up in Ancient Israel, and The Cult of the Child, The Death and Burial of Children in Ancient Israel, which is forthcoming from Oxford University Press. She is the recipient of the Biblical Archaeological Society's 2019 Publication Award for the Best Book Relating to Hebrew Bible. Christy, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. The scion of 10 generations of rabbis, Rabbi Nama Kelman made her mark by becoming the first woman rabbi ordained in Israel. Indeed, she was ordained in 1992 at Hebrew Union College's Jerusalem campus, which she later joined on the staff in 1997, where she held various roles, including the director of HUC's Year in Israel program. And in 2009, she became the first woman dean of the Jerusalem campus. She has raised the profile of liberal and reformed Judaism in Israel and the diaspora. And it's a pleasure to have you, Nama, on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here broadcasting from Jerusalem. We're going to discuss the social justice Torah commentary, and it asks all kinds of questions about what the Torah has to say about social justice. We're going to ask the editor, Barry Block, and two of its contributors, Nama Kelman and Christy Garraway, about some of the themes that emerge uh, in the course of discussing Torah through the lens of social justice. And so I'd like to begin with you, Barry. In your introduction, you argue quite persuasively, I think, that Judaism is intrinsically political, a position that is in and of itself actually pretty controversial, especially today. Also, but less controversially, you teach us that Judaism is ethical. Now, ethics and politics are clearly not the same thing, but you seem to be saying that they intersect in the project of social justice, which is the engine for this commentary. And I want to ask you if that is indeed the case. Do you think that social justice lies at the intersection of ethics and politics? People often say rabbis shouldn't preach politics. And I tend to agree with that because I, I define politics in that regard very narrowly as advocating 
for or against a candidate. And um, speaking out for social justice is about how society ought to be properly organized to for, for the benefit of all of its citizens, and particularly for those um, who have the least power and privilege and the least voice. And so, yes, I think that there is an ethical obligation on each of us to do our part to build a better future, to build a better society, um, and to build a better world. And that at a micro level, many of these social justice issues um, arise because of unethical behavior on the part of, of individuals, however, very often on the part of entrenched unethical systems, systemic racism to, to, to cite the most blatant. So, so the call to social justice is one that uh, permeates Torah and is articulated by the prophet saying that society needs to be organized and individuals need to behave in such a way as to assure justice um, for every member of, of the society. I wanna focus on one aspect of systemic injustices, if you will, by talking about marriage and asking you, Nama, about your contribution to this commentary, which focuses on marriage, but it's a Torah commentary. So you highlight, not surprisingly, the, the marriage between um, Isaac and Rebecca on the one hand and Ruth and Boaz on the other. And here's the point that I took away from your commentary, that the challenge of marriage in Judaism is the affirmation of women's agency, something I think we can say without being unreasonable, largely achieved in Reform Judaism, but not in Orthodoxy and not in Israel, where Orthodoxy governs marriage, even among the non-Orthodox. There is, however, at the same time in your piece, an undercurrent of another theme, which is that of love. Love that is conspicuous in the cases of Rebecca and Ruth, which you cite. So I want to ask you, what is the role of love in this work of affirming women's agency? Love in the Torah is not the kind of romantic love we think about. And I write about this in the article. It's what I like to call a re redemptive love, redemptive with a small R and a capital R in both of their cases that they were destined to find these life partners based on love because their role is to ensure a legacy, a genealogy of redemption based on love. So we know that Rebecca is the source of Isaac's comfort. And uh, this is the first mention in our Torah of a man loving a woman or two life partners, and, and she comforts him. And although the word love is not mentioned really in the book of Ruth, it's just flowing with loving kindness, with chesed. So we have to think about it that way. When love is about chesed, uh, loving kindness and care and responsibility and taking care of the other and the stranger and healing and comfort, it becomes part of what I think is one of the strongest messages of our Torah, that we are a legacy, a tradition of redemptive love. And through redemptive loving kindness, we, we improve 
the world, we improve our community, and, and often it forms the basis of social justice. I wanted to add one other thing you asked Rabbi Black, Barry, about religion and politics. Our big crisis in Israel is that religion and politics is completely enmeshed. But when, when you separate politics, when you separate somehow, love can conquer conflicts and jealousy, again, if it's channeled to loving kindness. Christy, you write about the divine imperative to stop wrongful convictions. Torah has an approach to living up to that divine imperative. So I'd like to ask you to tell us what we learn from Torah, according to your commentary, about Torah's living up to that imperative. But I'd also like to ask you as a second part to share your thoughts about how we today might live up to that imperative, given that human justice is as fallible as the humans who administer it, unlike the divinely sanctioned justice as promised by Torah from God. My contribution was from Tetzaveh, and uh, we, we see that the Torah is listing a bunch of different ways that the high priest can atone for various different things that Israel has done. And the Talmud goes and expounds on these and talks about murder, idolatry, sexual misconduct, and then does something really interesting, explaining how each of the priestly vestments atones for one sin in particular. So we get also here a list of all of the different things that the priest puts on. And so the Talmud connects the two and notes that the tunic is for bloodshed, the pants for illicit sex, the mitre for arrogance, and the aphod for idolatry. But then it comes to the Hoshan Mishpat, and it says the high priest's breastplate of judgment atones for judgments, which seems strange. Like, why would you need to atone for your judgment? And Rashi comes forth and says, aha, here it's atoning for incorrect judgments. So in other words, the rabbi is understanding the Torah to say that even in the best case scenario, there's error in human justice. And they feared, and I think rightfully so, that miscarriages of justice in Israel would repel a just God. And indeed, in the book of Leviticus, this is a very um, important question and something they expound on quite a bit. And they say, well, if you are unjust and you break uh, the covenantal laws or uh, you, you are impure and you don't atone for these things, you're going to get kicked out of the promised land. And of course, we all know that exile happens and leads to diaspora. So this question is very much, I think, central to the way that ancient Israelites uh, structure their society. They want to be a just society. And so they they put in safeguards within their justice system to make sure that even human justice that is done in error would be fixed through the Hoshan Mishpat. So I think that answers the first part of your question. The second part of your question uh, addressed what we can do today. And as I began preparing for this piece, I interviewed uh, one of the lawyers who works for the Innocence Project um, named Alan Tarber, and he is in Philadelphia. And I was asking him just to give me a sense of some things that are faced by uh, lawyers when they go and work on, on different projects. And he noted uh, and started giving me so much data 
talking about the different ways that, you know, funding needs to happen and uh, competent representation is really important. Uh, fair trials are important as are reasonable sentences. And so in, you know, looking back and thinking about ways that this has failed in our own justice system, it's not because the American justice system, which is what I was writing about, is unjust or is not trying to do its best, but it's that in some cases it fails. And so I write about different ways in which it fails. And uh, I look at uh, different false confessions that have happened. And it's really interesting to see that false confessions that have been overturned are mostly in cases of rape and murder for men. And in cases of drug crimes and family crimes for women, which are crimes that many times show the desire to convict someone just based on sexist stereotypes. So cases wherein a child dies, a baby dies, and they interview the family members and the family members say, oh, she was really fed up with being a mom. So somehow X leads to Y and this, you know, a woman is convicted, even though there's no substantial proof that she did anything wrong. Cases like this have been taken up by different organizations, such as Yeshiva University's Cardo School of Law, the Bloom Legal Clinic Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University, and the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, along with this is the Innocence Project. So different organizations like this are striving to be our modern day Hoshan Mishpat, uh, that we should have something that gives us a sense of checks and balances so that we can do our best when there is no modern day Khoshan Mishpat to bail us out. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I'd like to go around the horn and ask all of you about a critique of social justice current in the Jewish world today, while the four of us, by virtue of being on this call and in this interview, are bought in to the uh, value and the inspiration of tikkun olam. Some Jewish thinkers see tikkun olam as a reductive approach to Judaism that either diminishes our civilization's dimensionality and richness, or that abandons its distinctiveness, meaning that there's nothing uniquely Jewish about social justice. I want to ask how each of you responds to this critique individually, and I'd like to begin with Nama. Well, I think one of the things I, I tried to do in the, in the article was ground social justice in our biblical narratives and our biblical values. It's true that tikkun olam has become so inflated and overused, it's almost detached itself 
from what I think are deep biblical humanitarian roots and, and um, a worldview that's not democracy. You can't say that the Bible promotes democracy and equality, okay? Social justice indeed does. How can we build a bridge from what clearly is uh, such a passion, particularly of our young people, to pursue social justice? How do we build a bridge to Jewish values and to our own particularity so it doesn't become so universal that we really don't need Judaism and you find yourself identifying with other causes, which are certainly very worthy, but find, find yourself uh, detaching from what from I think are so many, many Jewish, Jewish causes. causes. And Chris, Christine just talked about this. How do we talk about, you know, safeguards, checks and balances that social justice, tikkun olam, goes so far afield, it, it loses its, its Jewish roots and, and gra- literally ground it. And that's what uh, I love about the Ruth and Boaz story. And it's social justice literally grounded in the fields, <laughs> in the, the sides of the fields and what's left over in the fields to care for the poor and the orphan. We have served as Jews the social justice very well when we have been very much part of the powerless. But what happens when you're the powerful? And that's Israel's greatest challenge. Um, And again, back to the matter of of marriage and divorce in Israel, we have a completely, I believe, uh, monopolistic and corrupted system would denies, particularly women, any agency in matters of divorce and limits them in, in marriage. And I think it's because politics has overwhelmed what are deep Jewish values of justice and the agency of, of every human being. Barry, I'd like to ask you, uh, in turn, uh, what you make of the critique of tikkun olam as reductive. This book, Social Justice Torah Commentary, is intended as both a refutation and an antidote to that problem. And I, I want to first of all say that the problem is legitimate, that, that there are plenty of, of people who speak out in the name of tikkun olam in a very shallow way, who will ground themselves you know, in a very simplistic way on, on what I think are extremely important principles of the Torah, but Salam Elohim, that we're all created in God's image, tzedek, 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 you shall, um, justice, justice shall you pursue, and, and you know, remembering the stranger, for we were all strangers in Egypt, but without digging very deeply into um, what those principles are all about and without digging more deeply into Torah writ large to make authentically Jewish ju- social justice arguments. So the, the driving force behind the social justice Torah commentary is not to have a chapter on marriage and divorce equality in Israel and to have a chapter on on wrongful um, conviction and preventing wrongful conviction, as important as those are, rather to invite authors, including these two scholars, Nam and Christie, to dig deeply into the parshiot and the parshanut, the, the commentary of all kinds, and to make really strongly based Torah arguments 
for the social justice argument being made. So that the arguments are very particularly Jewish and emanating deeply from our tradition. Christy, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the critique of tikkun olam as reductive. I think one of the the answers that I would go to, um, or that I, I, I teach uh, when I, I teach the corpus of the Nevi'im, the prophets, uh, especially the 8th century prophets, and there's a whole debate uh, within the 8th century prophets about whether or not you should do the things that the Torah tells you to do, i.e. all of the mitzvot. They have this trope where it says, where God says, do I delight in your sacrifices? Do I delight in the sound of the animals bleeding? Do I delight, you know, in all of these things that God has asked? And the answer is straight up, no, I don't. Which seems completely contradictory to, you know, you imagine the ancient Israelite and you imagine the, the modern reader, you're like, well, but it says in all of the laws that we're supposed to do these things, right? We're supposed to be this just community where we do all these things. And the critique that the 8th century prophets are offering is that you're not doing it with the right kavanah. You're not doing it with the right intention behind it. So I think, um, you know, this might also go to this modern sense of social justice being reductive. We need to not only think about why we're doing the things that we're doing, but how we do them and the intent behind them so that it doesn't become this rote action that is done like, oh, look, everybody's going to the animal shelter to help the animals. Cool. I'm going to go to, oh, look, it's green day and we're going to pick up everything. Oh, it's big Sunday and we're going to contribute because that's what the family is doing. But rather that we do it with a deep sense of intention and knowing exactly why we're doing what we're doing. And I think perhaps as the others were saying, you know, we can find a way to to bridge that gap and make what we're doing and work for tikkun olam a little less reductive and more meaningful and Jewish. So I'm hearing from all of you some interesting themes. First of all, tikkun olam as a byword can indeed be reductive, um, but that's not the goal. The goal is something deep, textual, civilizational, but also spiritual. But I also hear a subtext, which is that there is a counter critique, namely the rote performance of mitzvot can also be reductive. And so that there's a, there's some kind of depth that we achieve when uh, all of the aspects of our civilization and our heritage are lived up to uh, to the best of our capacity. I think that's a pretty compelling message uh, to receive from um, our rabbis and scholars such as you. I'd uh, I'd like to close out by asking you uh, what has become one of my favorite questions, which is, where were the surprises in compiling and researching for this book? Barry, what took you by surprise? There was one surprise after the next, um, and and pleasant ones, and extraordinary, thoughtful parshanut that that I would never have have considered. Our colleague Rabbi Rubin Zelman writes this extraordinary piece on Parshat Miketz about the potential of people who are um, released from incarceration who've been imprisoned. And the text he uses is, is Joseph and the cupbearer and looking at both of them as previously incarcerated people. Now, there's an example of something that seems obvious, but it should be obvious, 
but I never thought of it before. And the, the depth to which he goes to make this argument about how we, we ought to assure the, the possibilities for previously incarcerated people in our world is, is really extraordinary. And then I would say that the biggest surprise of all is that I had received a, a really terrific piece from Rabbi Jill Jacobs on Parshat Bihar about the occupation. That was not a surprise. And then there was no, no piece on advocating for the state of Israel as a social justice imperative. So I specifically asked Rabbi Jeremy Barris to, to, to write something. And it happened, Parsha Lech Lecha had come open. So each of them writes based on the Parsha assigned, and yet each of them also turns to a separate verse in neither of their Parshiyot, which talks about how the land will vomit out its inhabitants if they're not faithful, if they're not ethical and moral. And, and they make almost opposite arguments based on the same text in which Rabbi Barris is arguing that Palestinians will be vomited out of the land if, if they don't behave morally. And Rabbi Jacobs argues that the Jewish people could be vomited out of the land if we don't behave morally and ethically in Eretz Israel. And it's just sort of amazing to have two opposing arguments based on on a verse of Torah that was in neither of the portions that they were that they were assigned. Nama, what surprised you when you were writing your contribution? You know, it's not a surprise, but I still can't believe that I live in a country that has a patriarchal primitive system controlled by ultra-Orthodox rabbis who, who basically deem what I would call fit, who's fit to marry each other in the sense if you're a divorcee, you can't marry a, you know, a Kohen. Uh, if you don't have a, a get, a recognized divorce, you can't marry anybody. And you're still chained, literally chained to your, your husband until he's, he releases you. So in that sense, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing these beautiful love stories, the sense of redemption, they're almost messianic. And what would it be like to live in a world of, of caring and loving and seeing the humanity in the other? And this is pouring out of this, these biblical texts. And then I live in this reality that is, is really uh, disturbing. And, and we still seem locked into this terrible system because of this corrupt system where the Orthodox ultra-Orthodox party hold the keys to, to the coalition now. Maybe things will change, but in the meantime, things have changed in that the sense of that there's been a tremendous backlash from grassroots, including Orthodox and particularly Orthodox feminists that reject the rabbinate to have control over marriage. Uh, divorce is a different problem, and one way to get around that is that people are not just simply not getting married. So in some ways, as I said, it's, it's not a surprise, but it's almost every time I have to explain it to any kind of audience, I'm, I feel like, how, how did this happen? Or why won't we live up to uh, our greatest biblical principles and ideals that these stories uh, set out for us? The, uh, the surprise here is that we need to constantly be reawakened to the urgency of these issues, especially when Nama raises the case of Israel. It, it, there is a surprising quality to it. And there's something equally surprising on the affirmative side, 
which is that these intimate relationships can indeed shape whole aspects of our social fabric in really compelling ways. So here's to the progress that you're achieving in Israel and, um, and the urgency of the problems as well. Mm-hmm. Christy, I'd like to give you the last word and share with us something that uh, surprised you, delighted you, challenged you in the course of uh, researching and writing for this uh, social justice commentary. The one thing that stood out to me was that I'm writing about a social justice system, a justice system in America, a criminal justice system, wherein it seems that everybody wants to help out and do the right thing. And in that desire to, to do the right thing and to, uh, to bring justice to those who are wronged, uh, sometimes it fails. So that even, you know, eyewitnesses, they um, sometimes give false testimony, but not wittingly or knowingly. But I think the thing that was most surprising to me is the small things that can be done. Like if you show someone a lineup with one person in it, did this person commit this crime? The eyewitness might say yes. Whereas if you were to, you know, provide 20 people and have them pick out the person, they might not be able to say yes to any of those 20. At the same time, the, our society has a really difficult notion with the idea that we might be wrong and that we might need to revisit convictions that were made and that there is a sense of uh, fallibility that we don't want to acknowledge. And um, I'll just share one quote from Judge Learned Hand who wrote in 1923, our criminal procedure has always been haunted by the ghost of the innocent person convicted. Uh, which is something, you know, we're still working on today. Well, if nothing else, this incredible compilation of so many of our friends and colleagues and scholars whom we admire, this compilation reminds us of the urgency of the topic. And as Nama pointed out, the utter rootedness of our concerns and that it does belong front and center in our expression of our Jewish selves as a unique civilization in the human story with something to offer. And for that, I want to thank all three of you, editor Rabbi Barry Block, and the two contributors who joined us today, Dr. Christine Garraway and Rabbi Nama Kelman, all three of you for such a wonderful conversation and for your participation in this book, which is available uh, through all the usual channels. And I recommend it highly as a centerpiece for conversation and a guidepost for our continued work in improving the world. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.